Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist, and he joins us now. Good day to you, Carl. Let's start with that theme. Is it the year of the global synchronized slowdown? Hi, good morning, Jonathan. It's kind of interesting, me being over here and you being over there. Um, we're looking at uh, certainly slower growth in Europe. Uh, we're looking at uh, slower growth in Canada. We heard about that last night. Japan is doing actually a little bit better. China's numbers domestically disappointing. The trade numbers, though, people are taking this uh, one-off number uh, and projecting it into a, a slowdown. China's exports and imports are actually growing between 10 and 20% faster than world trade. But that's the key theme, Jonathan. Let's talk about uh, world trade. World trade in the third quarter slowed to 4.7% year over year growth of exports, and that's just unacceptably slow. It's consistent with a slowing of the world economy. Not a recession, but a slowdown, and it's certainly troubling. Well, Carl, let's talk about what's distorted and what is not. Quite clearly, last year, we saw some front-loading ahead of expected tariffs. When are we going to start to see some so-called clean data from China? Well, you're never going to see clean data from China. You really want to, you really want to look at the uh, six-month, three-month, and 12-month moving averages when you look at exports and imports, and they've been remarkably steady. China's imports, which is how it really affects the rest of the world, up 13 and a fraction percent year over year for the last five months. That's faster than world trade's been growing. China's been adding to the rate of growth of world trade, not subtracting from it. On the export side, between 10 and 20% year-over-year growth of exports all year. So China is not the problem. In fact, with the U.S. In growing in terms of its exports and imports, also faster than world trade, and China, one has to be really worried about the rest of the world, where the slowdown must be substantial in order to generate these kinds of slow numbers for the world as a whole. Well, Eurozone industrial production data also came out this morning, and that was pretty ugly as well. I think the question for the U.S.-based investor at the moment, Carl, is to what extent, to what degree is the U.S. economy insulated from everything that's happening worldwide at the moment? What's the answer to that, Carl? Well, the answer to that is that we're worried. Everybody from Fed officials to Wall Street economists uh, are taking a look at the slowdown in the world economy and saying that's a, a threat uh, to uh, U.S. economic growth and to world economic growth. So uh, we're watching the slowdown in trade. The slowdown in oil prices is kind of ominous because it takes a big chunk of the world, the part of the world that produces oil and exports it and reduces their export revenues. And uh, that in the past has been a negative for world trade and for world growth. And of course, a lot depends on how far it goes. There are some people who are looking at the indicators and saying, well, we should be looking for a bottom in Europe. Uh, I personally don't see it in indices like uh, the European Economic Confidence Index, the IFO yeah. Index. Uh, you know, we're not seeing any sign of a bottom yet. But those indices are at their current levels pointing to a slowdown in growth, not to a recession. Really, really easy to paint a ugly picture of ugly global growth. Uh, on a morning like this morning, especially in futures coming in by around about 22 points on the S&P 500 off the back of that. A little bit more complex to identify where this shows up in the US economy, Carl. If you just take a real-time indicator of the health of the US economy and look at initial jobless claims, that's still hanging in there around multi-decade lows. If you had a dashboard of economic data points for the US right now, Carl, where would you be looking for this slowdown worldwide to show up domestically? 
Yeah, my colleague Jim O'Sullivan uh, puzzles exactly this point in his uh, recent edition of uh, Daily Notes on the United States. You know, at high-frequency economics, we're thinking that the U.S. The, the gloom about the U.S. economy is probably a bit overstated, which doesn't mean it's not the vogue right now in the markets. But you look at the ISM, it's still pointing to very, very healthy growth. You're looking at in weekly initial claims. There's no real sign of a, of a problem in those data. Um, so the U.S. economy seems to be moving along perhaps better uh, than expected. The linkage to the world probably isn't through trade as much as as itself, but rather through the fact that so many U.S. companies, most U.S. companies these days, including our own, do a lot of our business overseas and generate yeah. a lot of our profits from overseas. And that's where the tie-in to the equity markets is. I believe about 40% of the earnings on the S&P 500 coming from abroad. There's plenty of gloom out there this morning in the oh, data, yes, plenty yes. of gloom in the politics as well. Our chief Brexit correspondent in the city of London this morning. Good morning to you, Mr. Keane. Uh, just extraordinary. The the Prime Minister, I thought, was fascinating. For those of you, we carried it fully on our global audience on Bloomberg Television. Uh, really, the, the, the Prime Minister, uh, John, up at Stoke-on-Trent in your neck of the woods. Yeah. 70% voting for Brexit to leave the EU. And she gave a very brave speech, uh, you know, given the 7 p.m. vote scheduled for tomorrow night. Well, you identified the, the right audience, <clears throat> Tom, because what is she trying to say now? That there's more chance of there being... No Brexit, the no deal, if this isn't passed yeah, tomorrow. As Wolfgang Munchau said, and it was wonderful to have him with us in the last hour, there's about five conversations going on here right now. And to Carl Weinberg uh, of High Frequency Economics, you are expert at the conversation of linking all this to the actual growth of a nation. The growth of the United Kingdom, where is it? I mean, is it on the edge of recession? Well, uh, at this point, there's not really a lot you can say about forecasting the UK economy because there are so many balls in the air. If there were no Brexit, if everything just occurred in a straight line, there weren't all this uncertainty, the UK economy still would probably be slowing down. We look at the domestic indicators, you know, credit growth is slowing, industrial production is down, services doing a little bit better, but not too great. Construction is doing okay, but a lot of that might even be Brexit related. So um, what we are, and the housing market, of course, is down. So if everything, if nothing were to change, then the economy would probably be slowing down at least possibly turning a corner into recession. But then you add the uncertainty of Brexit, which in our analysis is a stagflation event. It's going to generate a shortage of labor, which will raise wages, cause inflation, and at the same time reduce potential output in the UK. A hard Brexit means a very, very hard downturn with a good chunk of inflation uh, coming its way possibly on the order of magnitude we haven't seen uh, before. And, you know, I, I guess the the magnitude before is going to rely on this vote tomorrow night. I mean, is this vote economically critical? I don't buy that. Well, I think that it narrows the choices. If this deal is rejected, then we're really down to two choices, which is hard Brexit or no Brexit. I don't think that Europe will return to the table to negotiate a deal, even a parliament, a new deal, even if parliament takes control of the process. And um, I'm not so sure there's any politically attainable uh, configuration within parliament, even if uh, people cross benches, which I doubt they will, uh, yeah. to do anything else. So I think it comes down to no Brexit or hard Brexit. And uh, I don't really know where, which one of those two ways it's going to yeah. end up. John, I, I'm fascinated in your thoughts because in reading the papers this morning, at my uh, my uh, breakfast at um, uh, McDonald's. Yeah, right. Uh, um, you know, reading the newspapers this morning, the Telegraph approach is that 
there can be a smoothness after the initial uproar. John, you have lived this in the United Kingdom. Can't the United Kingdom solve its many trade dynamics and problems just by working things out item by item? You would hope so, but how many items are there to work out item Without, by item? Eric Nielsen made adamant there's 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 uncountable trade agreements it would take to be a, done. It would take a long, long time. And um, from what I've seen so far, they've barely started. And this is the problem, yeah. Tom. If there is a serious conversation about no deal, then what kind of preparations have been done at the government level? Um, I'm not convinced that enough has been done so far. So we go into this vote tomorrow. It's fascinating. Mm. Most people expect it not to pass. I I struggle to find anyone that thinks it will pass. And then the Prime Minister has three days to tell us what the plan B is. And she told us, what, over the last few months, there is no plan B, Tom. Right. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much with High Frequency uh, Economics. Will the earnings season here in the United States do anything to boost confidence? And it begins this quarter with Citigroup taking the spotlight with fourth quarter results due a little bit later, followed by JP Morgan and Wells Fargo coming up tomorrow. Joining us to discuss is Fred Cannon, KPW Global Director of Research, and he joins us here in New York. Good morning to you, Fred. Good morning, John. Great so what here. are we looking for from the big banks as they kick things off a little bit later? We're looking at them to be, see if we can beat diminished expectations. I think it's a little bit regrettable that Citi's the first off because we're actually more cautious on Citi than J.P. Morgan and Wells, and generally J.P. Morgan and Wells come first. But nonetheless, um, it's really beating diminished expectations. So expectations in terms of the earnings have come in, but the banks have rallied into this as well. So it's kind of two different things going into the numbers. Is this a low bar or a high bar? What is it? <laughs> it's a low bar, no doubt. I mean, yes, they've rallied a bit this year, but look at where they came from. Yeah, 20% move pretty much last and, year. And remember, coming into the third quarter, I think there was the market was down so much. There's a lot of expectations diminishing both on earning estimates as well as, as performance. City warned early. We do expect capital markets to be soft. Yeah, Fred, what's, and I give John Farrell a ton of credit, folks, for identifying the weak bank performance earlier this year. I mean, the depth of the bear market for J.P. Morgan was down 22 uh, percentage. Right now, I'm going to call it negative 16 percent off the summer 2018 top. What metric is most important? Is, is it a book value balance sheet analysis or is it something on the income statement that matters to Fred Cannon? What matters to me is that we continue to see credit be solid because that's really what the market was signaling during the fourth quarter was, hey, we're worried about a recession. We're worried about the underwriting and the credit because that's what really could destroy the forward earning estimates. If credit remains solid uh, and the balance sheets are strong and we get a little bit of help like we expect from loan growth, we think we'll be okay. How much patience is there in the underperformers? How much institutional Wall Street. We've been doing this for 10 years. You got to get it going. I don't mean Deutsche Bank, Commerce Bank. I mean in the U.S., the U.S. underperformers where we're just saying, let's go. Is that evident this time around? No, I don't think that there's that much, uh, you know, what I would call frustration with the with the big U.S. banks and even the um, underperformers. Clearly, there's been fr- frustration with Wells Fargo. Um, but as we look forward, we see a situation where fundamentally these, these institutions are making their cost of capital. Um, with the exception of Citi, they're trading above tangible book value. And they're cheap relative to the market with an earnings outlook that's, that's okay. So I think that the 
traditional value investors are getting very intrigued by these institutions today. So let's spend a little bit more time at the single name level and get away from the sector just for a moment. City's out in about 40 minutes. You're not that optimistic. A lot of people keep saying to me, look at the cost story. Look at the cost story with City. What is it about the cost story at City that we need to pay attention to when these numbers drop? Well, I think that's going to be a, take a lot of parsing this time because remember with in trading investment banking down as much as we expect they are, and they've already said they are, it's very hard to control those costs for the quarter. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt, but John, I think you nailed it. It's all about the cost story, John Farrell. Do you see John Farrell in your reading at all that anybody's talking about? Yeah, that we got to make revenue, we got to make money story? I think they are, but those revenue expectations have diminished so much going yeah. into the end of 2018. That's the problem, Fred. Absolutely. And that's why it's hard to control the cost. That said, what we're also looking for is a read through to the rest of the industry. And that is what's going on with loan growth? What's going on in net interest margins? What? Because we do believe the large regionals and the small and mid cap banks, which we're positive on coming in this quarter, could actually outperform. How many bodies will be shed? I'm going to pick on Citigroup, 206,000 listed. I'm sure it's less than that right now. But five years from now, how big is a a given 200,000 job bank? It's, uh, you know, it's up to a lot of things. I mean, we'll ask Value Act themselves is probably a better uh, group to ask right now, to be honest, but um, given their position in it. But we have to think it should be probably 5 to 10% smaller. What bank are you going to follow this week? What's the bellwether that you care about, Fred Cannon? I care about the fundamentals at Wells. It's the most domestic bank. We want to see how that loan growth, if they, even though they're constrained, if we saw some fundamental loan growth on the balance sheet, and we want to see what that net interest margin does. Right. And finally, credit. Is there <clears throat> any kind of sign that any credit problems? Because that will hurt the industry a lot. Hey, Fred, great to catch up. Fred Cannon, KBW Global Director of Research. Let us focus, I guess, on the the Battle of Washington. We could look at London. We could look at some of the fractious governments of Europe and, of course, China always. We do this with Leslie Venjamuri of Chatham House, who does so much of their American coverage and with her work uh, at Cambridge and at LSE uh, as well. Leslie, good morning to you. Uh, we, we spoke earlier in London about Washington and the dynamic that we'll see today. We've got a clear dynamic for Prime Minister May in 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 uh, England and Westminster and the Commonwealth. What will we see as the dynamic in Washington in the next 24 to 48 hours? Well, there's so much pressure right now on uh, Congress, on the Republicans, and on McConnell in particular, to come up with a deal that that so that we can get this the U.S. government reopened. Um, as we saw over the weekend, the polls are suggesting that. The public is blaming the president and they're blaming the Republicans, uh, not the Democrats. So I think there's tremendous pressure to cut a deal, but it's still unclear what that deal will be other than perhaps more uh, money for border security and a a bit of a give to the president. I I mean, the summary of Brexit is maybe they're going to kick us the can in their own unique way down the road. Why can't Republicans and Democrats kick the can irrespective of the president? to get the government open and then deal with these tangible border and wall issues. Well, you know, that's the proposal that we're seeing, right, coming from Lindsey Graham saying, let's reopen the government and continue to negotiate on the wall, try to get some money and come back to that in the next few weeks. Because it really is, you know, this is the longest shutdown that we've seen. We're into day 24. It is, it is 
tremendously problematic, but the Democrats are calling the Republicans to task, and I think this has become really a battle about who is in charge in Washington. They're setting, set, drawing a line in the sand, um, and it's really about you know whose authority will, will continue to govern or will govern going forward. Leslie, as you indicate, the president seems to be losing in the polls. Is that tension point big enough to get him to pull a 180? Um, unlikely. I mean, the other, you know, the other thing to note is that in the past, what we've seen is that presidents recover very quickly from shutdowns. That that sort of very negative public reaction tends to disappear within a couple of weeks. This is this could be different, um, depending, of course, on you know how much longer it goes on and how bad the optics are. Because the, the because you know what what we're seeing is that there's there's really no evidence to suggest that there's any kind of emergency, there's any justification for for closing down the government on the basis of, you know, funding the wall in the short term. So I think if, if we don't see some sort of resolution, this one might actually hurt the president. But whether that's enough to get him to turn around, um, I, it, there's no sign right now that that's the case. So, Leslie, the idea that his recovery rate in the polls, historically speaking, could play out once again for the president of the United States, President Donald Trump, is one thing. The economic data is the same story. It's a similar story. You get these shutdowns, there are hits to economic growth, and then we make it up later on in the year. So for market participants, Leslie, it leaves them asking a question they're familiar with. Why does this domestic political drama matter to us? Why does it matter? Well, it matters, you know, if you if you think about the optics, anybody who's looking at the United States right now, you're talking about a government shutdown. That's that's a pretty serious thing, even if you think that in the moment, you know, you might be okay financially. There's so much uncertainty that that creates going forward. And it creates, you know, it, it also raises a very significant question about what the next weeks and months are going to look like on pretty much anything, because what we're seeing well, right now is a Congress that, you know, isn't working together. Okay. I, 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 what you just said is brilliant. And that's the great fear of anybody of any political persuasions that the view forward is going to be challenged just like this crazy shutdown that we're in. If that's the case, is there any desire to take away the enhanced executive powers, which I'm going to signal back to 1974 in Watergate. I haven't heard that dialogue yet. Well, you know, first of all, there is an immediate crisis. People need to get the government open again. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, Congress is uh, forever going to be wrestling. The Democrats are going to be wrestling with how can they constrain the president? What mechanisms do they have? But remember, you know, the Senate is still controlled by the Republicans. And they're so far... The Republicans are, by and large, supporting the president. So unless that changes, you know, that the, the real possibility of enacting uh, tangible constraints on the, on the president's power um, are, are minimal. But as time goes by, and remember, even for the president, right, it's in his interest yeah. for somebody to give him a win that he can take and move forward because this isn't in his interest or do you anybody s- else's. Okay, that's well said. Do you, do you see him actually indicating that he's willing to do that, to find an element or an item of wiggle room that allows him to quote unquote, take a win. Well, this is the crazy part, right? At the moment, it really looks like neither the president nor the Democrats have any interest in putting anything positive on the table. Uh, You know, Lindsey Graham is different and that could actually lead to some, that could be the sign that there's going to be some movement. It's going to have to come from the Republicans. The president's not going to back down to the Democrats. The Republicans, I think, are going to have to come up with a plan that that allows the president to say, I've got the money for border security. There's a bit of money here for the wall. Everybody sees that this is important. 
you know, and we're going to keep pushing on this. But that that's a very optimistic scenario. And at the moment, it, it you know, there's, there's mm. nothing to indicate that the president's going in that direction. Well, Leslie, that's the domestic story. Internationally, it looks like the president could get a win and he could get a win on trade. Uh, I don't know what that win looks like, Leslie, but with the latest data out of China, looking at that, it looks like the Chinese are having some problems. And I just wonder whether that increases the chances of us finally getting some kind of breakthrough with the U.S.-China trade dispute, Leslie. What do you think? Um, it does. It does look like there is, you know, the desire on the part of the Chinese as well as the, uh, on the part of China as well as the United States to to come to some sort of agreement. Um, whether that's significant and substantial enough to really alter the nature of that trading relationship, I'm skeptical. But whether it's substantial enough for the president to gain to gain a, a victory, I think that there is some some prospect for that. And remember, he's you know he's got a lot of backing across both sides of the aisle in the United States for taking this tough line. At the same time, you know the the U.S. economy has had a few wobbles. Uh, what what you suggested about China is exactly the case, and so I think there's there's goodwill and there's an interest on both sides to to have <clears throat> some sort of progress on this front. You touched on something important, Leslie, and I want to wrap things up there. Just a final question. Do you see this as a multi-generational issue between the United States and China? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is the key strategic relationship for certainly the rest of my lifetime and and the next generations and how it gets, you know, we're right at the beginning of really rethinking and renegotiating that relationship. We're going to be talking about it every week for a very long time to come. Leslie Vingemary, thank you so much with Chatham House of great perspective today uh, in London on the challenges of Brexit and, of course, with her uh, full-time effort of review of the United States of America and the shutdown in Washington. You know Bloomberg Intelligence is worth its weight in gold. And John Butler has put together a story. He's done this with Boyan Kim, which is just simply Apple bull case, Apple bear case. John Butler joins us now, our senior Apple analyst in charge of concept, product, and heaven forbid we'd actually talk about the financial ratios. Who wins, bulls or bears, John Butler? I say in the long run, the bulls win, Tom. You know, Apple really is a premium brand here. Uh, fast forward a year from now, they're going to be up against easier comps. They'll have new iPhones out uh, on the market. Yeah. And, um, you know, frankly, it's tough to predict politics, but I have to believe at some point the China trade situation begins to get better, not worse. In your granular analysis, which folks, is page after page after page. Let's stay with a bull case. What are the bears most misjudge? I think they misjudge the, um, again, the power of the brand here. You know, Apple has a lot of cash to work with. They can expand the business through acquisition if they choose to. If they don't, again, they can really drive the brand to expand the services business. Other products, accessories like the watch, for instance, and AirPods have done quite well. I think there's more to come on that front, yeah. and I think the bears miss that. I, I mean, anecdotally, I must admit, I'm seeing more watches and more of the white things sticking out of people's ears than I saw a year ago. To say it's my exactly. scientific, it's my scientific analysis. John Butler, when we look at this, it's always a risk. Well, they've got a lot of money, and they're financially engineering by dividend increase and return of cash through share buyback to shareholders. State the case. 
that Apple is not financial engineering? Well, it's, you know, every company to a degree does some financial engineering. Again, they have a lot of cash they can put to work. They are committed to buying back shares. They've committed overall to returning capital to shareholders, and that boosts the bottom line. But it's not organic growth in the business, right? I think Apple's biggest problem right now uh, to sort of kick into the bear case is they are looking squarely at a mature market. This is the PC market five years ago. And, you know, they need to expand beyond that <clears throat> reliance they have on the iPhone. Um, so, you know, there are other elements to the bear case there. But to me, that's sort of the main yeah. problem that Apple well, has to deal with. I, on a partial differential basis, heaven forbid, I would say that they would... <clears throat> cut the cost of the fancy phones, bring down the monthly payment of the fancy phones by extending out whatever. I mean, they got room to move here to find out where the market is, don't they? They do. It's a great point, Tom. Pricing really is a science. Uh, I'm sorry, art as much as science. And you need to find that right balance <clears throat> between maximum price and maximum volume. And um, I think they're still trying to find that. This latest quarter tells me they sort of hit a wall on on price increases, you know, over okay, the past. Okay, well, no, come on. I remember Philip Morris and a pack of cigarettes was 82 cents and one day it was $1.12 or whatever and they hit a wall. You have it beautifully done. Item 13, iPhone price has hit a ceiling bare case. Well, there's like six ways to fix that, right? There are many ways to fix that. I think you hit on it just a moment ago, which is expand the portfolio you know maybe you could even come out with more expensive iphones but at the lower end expand on the 10r and take it maybe a little bit lower or keep the older uh 10rs on the market and drop the price by a hundred dollars but i do think they need overall to expand the market that they're in which is the premium segment and maybe even extend down to uh, the high end of that sort of those mid-priced phones. Okay, what's a 10R? Is that the XR? This is like a cheaper phone. It's pretty colors. It's selling to who? It's selling to those <clears throat> people who want to step up to facial recognition, but can't quite afford it. So is it working? It, uh, tough to say. We'll know at the end of the month when Apple reports. The reports out of the supplier community would tell you that the NR, the XR, pardon me, has sort of fallen flat in terms of demand. I, I'm not so sure on that, you know. Okay, but, but this is critical, folks. And, you know, it doesn't mean you're an Apple. We try to avoid the fanboy stuff with Apple as much as we can. But, John Butler, if the XR is their cheaper phone, is it that the, the kids, whether in China or the U.S. or Indonesia, wherever, they're going to wait and pay up for the fancy phone? Or that the XR just can't compete with the 800 other phones out there that are cheaper? Uh, it's hard to say. Again, the jury's still out on whether or not it's fallen flat. If it has fallen flat, it's fallen flat like the 5C did, if you remember exactly. that. They sort yes. of came out with a variant <clears throat> on the high-end phone. And people, I think, look at it and say, why don't I just wait? Six months and exactly. buy the higher-end phone. Was that where we're going to be? I mean, the, the point here That's is That's the risk of where we <clears throat> might be with this. And again, I, I, you know, they haven't reported the quarter yet. They've introduced okay. the phone, but we haven't really heard them weigh in on how it's selling. 
We're only right. getting anecdotal evidence from the supplier. Community. This is way too Apple fanboy talk for me. Let's bring in Paul Sweeney, listening very carefully to all my Apple. Am I doing enough, Paul, here? Am I enough fanboy to keep the conversation going? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you can never talk too much about Apple. When I, when I look at the Apple stock, John, and the story, you know, it's always been what's really driven this stock, you know, really over the last 10 years has been new products, new products, new products. And as you talked about, we're in a mature uh, phone market. So investors have been turning their attention to the services business. Will that ever be a driver for this company and this stock or will this stock always be a product story? No, I, I, it's a great question. In fact, that's the main... You only say that when Sweeney's on. You don't say that when I'm on. <laughs> that's the main question on this stock, though, right now, is how quickly they can grow that services business to the point where it picks up any slack in the iPhone business. There's a great hue and cry out there now for them to get more <clears> deeply into content. Uh, Paul, as you well know from your work in the content world, that's that can be lower margin, and I think that's Apple's hesitation there. Okay, I'm looking at Google, and I just typed this in, folks, because I'm not a sophisticate like John Butler or Paul Sweeney. Is Spotify better than Apple Music? I mean, the world's voting. They're saying Spotify's better. How does Tim Cook and his crew make Apple Music have that pixie dust that Spotify has? That is a tough call. I actually personally think Spotify is a little bit better than Apple. One, Why? One area where Apple is a bit weak is in the AI end of things. And the reason uh, that's artificial intelligence, and that really fuels Siri. And I think to get advances in Siri and then advances in your services <clears throat> business like yeah. Apple Music, they need to spy on their users a little bit more. And Apple is huge on privacy and I don't think they're willing to do that. So I think it's a matter of doing what they're doing right now, which is leveraging that great brand name and <clears throat> leveraging the installed yeah. base to try and get people to try Apple Music and then stay with it. John, I'm, I disconnected Siri. Did I'm you? Sorry. Yeah, I disconnected <laughs> Siri. I, I don't blame you, Tom. She's way, way behind Google Assistant you know, and Alexa. A, she wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> John Butler, thank you so Thanks, much for an update on Apple. And, you know, Paul Sweeney, this all comes down to some of the parts analysis. I haven't seen a good some of the parts in, uh, of Apple. But, you know, the financial engineering thing, the, it's still a cash flow juggernaut, isn't it? It's just, yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's just tremendous, the cash flow that they're putting out year in and year out. And they continue to invest back in their business across the board. It's not like they're hoarding the cash. So uh, yeah. you, when you adjust for cash, you can make the argument that it's a cheap stock. Yeah, the world's coming to an end. $269 kajillion a year ago, and now it's only $237 kajillion laying around to buy Sweeney Enterprises or Twitter or whatever they're going to do uh, as well. John Butler on Apple. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.